Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be discussing emergent phenomena with my guest, Daniel Ingram, who is the CEO of the Emergence Benefactors that support the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium. Daniel was an emergency medicine physician for 12 years, primarily at major trauma centers. He is author of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book, and is co-author of The Fire Casino with Shannon Stein. Daniel is located near Huntsville, Alabama. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Daniel. It's such a joy to have you with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Delightful to be here. Thank you so much. So to get us started, could you share a little bit about your journey into what you you are now describing as emergent phenomena? Sure. So when when I was a really young kid, I could get into some very blissful and peaceful states. And I would do that by going downstairs and lying on my parents' down comforter and just breathing. I don't know where I learned that or why I stopped doing it. I stopped doing it somewhere around four years old, somewhere in there, three and a half to four. Um, I remember the last time I did it, actually, and uh, then for some reason just stopped. I then started having lucid dreams and flying dreams around age five. I know that by the house we lived in. And then in uh, fourth grade, I was at a hippie Quaker school called Carolina Friends School in Durham, North Carolina. And I took an elective course called Close Encounters, which one of the things they did was teach us some basic uh, meditation techniques like progressive relaxation where you squeeze your toes and relax and feel the light coming in and do that for your feet and your legs and all that. So, um, and then started playing around with visualizing to have more flying dreams at about age 14 or 15. And that led to my consciousness exploding for the first time um, and traveling out of my body for my first time. It was a classic thing, lift out, see your body float through the wall, freak out, snap back, be paralyzed, kind of buzz for a while, and then feel like sort of a little disoriented. Um, and then I started having weird energetic phenomena that I didn't know what in the world they were. And then about 10 years later, I ran into... Um, the world of advanced meditation started going on intensive re meditation retreats first at IMS and then in India with Christopher Titmus and his crew and then Bhavana Society and other retreats and studying with some people and reading a ton of textbooks and found the maps and the techniques and these old books of recipes and instructions for how to get into this stuff and became totally obsessed with replicating those. So that's the short story. Well, and then you went on to become an emergency medicine physician. Yeah, that's true. So it's what I call the three Daniels. Daniel number one is this kid who has had weird meditative experiences as a child and then started doing retreats and um, basically then trained to become a meditative athlete of sorts. And then Daniel number two was school of science and math and physics and chemistry major and then ele electrical engineering and public health and all that biostatistics training and then medicine and then emergency medicine and then healthcare administration. And Daniel number two was basically told that Daniel number one was crazy and or didn't exist and probably needed meds. 
so that was obviously, um, you know, it's compartmentalized existence. And then when I retired almost five years ago, Daniel number three began to emerge that was taking a look at the best of these and figuring out how they could get along a whole lot better and then joining a team of people and figuring out how that could scale globally. So that's what I currently spend my time doing. So was it your personal experience being told you might need medications or you could have thought to have been needing that and also being a physician and seeing other people have these experiences that led you to create this consortium? Well, luckily, no one ever said I needed meds specifically to me. But when you're you know, in second year medical school and you're going through some of the symptoms of how they would diagnose mental illness, and those are actually intentional experiences that you spent very hard time, cushion and retreat time cultivating as an intentional thing and considered some of the most valuable experiences of your life. That obviously sets up this very weird dichotomy. And then actually what happened was in terms of me really starting this was Dr. Julieta Galante had been working with Dr. Andrea Gravovac and uh, Julieta Galante is an MD PhD with a, you know, public health background and who was uh, doing a, I think a postdoc at the, um, at Cambridge in the Department of Psychiatry, Cambridge University. And she was working with Andrea Grabovac, who's a psychiatrist in Vancouver. And they had, um, formed this little group that was trying to figure out how to incorporate some of the map technology and appreciation of the deeper end of the spiritual, meditative, mystical path. Um, and, you know, as Julieta said to me, you know, like, it's ridiculous that the most important and powerful experiences of my entire life, I can't, can't talk about, you know, basically in the height of the world of the, you know, the academic world that is in theory studying this stuff and would care about the possible, possible beneficial transformations and also the challenges. And like, you know, please, Daniel, help me be the change we want to see in the world. And so she, it was actually really her and them that, that got me into this. And then before I knew it, I was, you know, people were like, Hey, what are you doing with your summer, Daniel? And I'm like, Oh, I'm doing this thing. And they were like, well, that sounds really cool. And they just also happened to be meditators and consciousness adventurers that also happened to be neuroscientists and psychiatrists and public health people and emergency medicine and anthropologists and all these people. And some of them happened to be at top universities like Harvard and Oxford and Brown and Vanderbilt and MIT and Stanford and Berkeley and, you know, the usual list of, of impressive. And before we knew it, we were like, hey, maybe we have the horsepower to actually give this a shot. And so that's what we now are working to do. How would you describe what emergent phenomena are? That is one of the huge challenges. And how do you, where do you draw the line? And what are the various pros and cons of drawing a line? Right. So, so the, the simple thing to begin with is what most people would consider spiritual, mystical, magical, energetic, psychedelic, psi phenomenon. We're lumping into the basket of emergent phenomenon. Now, there's debates about whether or not this or that might be included in that list. For the moment, we're casting a pretty wide net and bringing a lot of things under that general banner, because often these things come together, they come in packages, they relate to each other, and then you get this incredible wide, incredibly wide range of possible effects and variants of each of these things. Um, and so for the moment, we're keeping it a pretty broad category, and um, and yeah, I'll start with that. And you probably have questions and thoughts. <laughs> well, what comes to mind is like you said that, you know, you were four years old and this is a really core component of our consciousness of who we are as humans. Yeah. Uh, and, and the number of family members I, who I've had who have got into these things sort of spontaneously or without obvious cause, the number of friends, 
um, the number of reports I've read online. Uh, th this is definitely a relatively common part of human experience to at least get into some of this territory. Yeah. And what you and the consortium are trying to do, if I understand it correctly, is research these phenomena and understand how they could be induced, how they can spontaneously arise, and look at what might be some of the more beneficial approaches to help an individual where there might be potential harm for folks so that you can, and healthcare professionals can navigate these areas better. Yeah, basically. So we have there, two sides of the thing. Well, if you have the side, the effects that people don't like, dark nights or existential crises or weird movements or whatever it is that they don't like the sense that they're not in control. Some people really like that. Some people really don't. Right. So there's this wide range of reactions to the possible, you know, adverse effects or unwanted side effects. Right. And so then the question is, how in the world do we, can we have high quality data that compares various methods of dealing with these uh, pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical, obviously, um, that help people have better outcomes? So that's question number one. And then sort of the other question, which is equally as important as these these experiences and, and practices, what we call emergent practices, can also are widely reported and, and found in my own experience to also potentially sometimes lead to great states of mental resilience, mental health, well-being, peace, contentment, acceptance, you know, healing, all of that. And then the question is, how do you support those from the sort of a positive psychology point of view? And there's, it's also widely reported that some of these ones might actually be precursors to some of these ones. And that some of these ones might sometimes be followed by crises. So the number of people I've talked to who had something like a, a peak experience or a first major opening, and then they found something challenging after that and in integrating it or making sense of it or it brought up a bunch of other material or layers of mind or whatever you want to call it. Right. And so not, not only understanding the, the kind of positive and negative ones, and then they're just the weird ones, right? Which aren't really necessarily negative or positive. They're just strange, but they could cause people a lot of concern. Am I having a seizure? Am I going crazy? Am I whatever? And something, you know, but they might not be intrinsically challenging or really that nice, just kind of neutral, right? And then sort of also lending a sense of this sort of the potential for development or transforming one into the other or seeing the opportunities and challenges or seeing the shadow sides of some of the positive ones, right? And so this these these kinds of more sophisticated understandings that you find in the more rich um, and well-mapped out traditions, or even some of the not well-mapped out ones that just have sort of general frameworks for dealing with these in broad strokes, right? Most of the traditions have these kinds of concepts, and yet they're almost entirely missing from the mainstream clinical world, which is very weird considering the number of people that might get into this territory. And particularly given that meditation and psychedelics, which are two of the most common things that might get people into this sort of territory, are scaling so rapidly. But the clinical understanding of them, I can guarantee you, is not. If you look at the textbooks of emergency medicine, emergency psychiatry, the DSM, ICD-10, 11 billing codes, you're not going to find anything useful. Neurology, there's, there's nothing useful in there pretty much at all. And some that might be harmful in that this is crazy needs meds kind of way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that spirituality is a term that gets bounced around in healthcare. And I like how your organization is recognizing a need for more neutral language because there are personal biases that healthcare practitioners carry and people can have those unconscious biases that impact their ability to really meet the needs of the people they're serving. 
Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, you know, you know about clinical practice, right? So, you know, and so to develop a therapeutic relationship with someone, if you're coming in with an ontological framework that's very different from theirs, for example, or a set of language or a set of biases, it can really impede the therapeutic relationship. And obviously establishing a therapeutic relationship is critical for healing, uh, you know, of all modalities. So. Can you share a little bit more about how you came up with the term emergent phenomenology um, and, and, you know, versus some other term, for example? Yeah, so we, we kicked around a lot of terms, and I think it was actually Dr. Katie Devaney that proposed this one, um, and it had been sort of used before, so I don't think it's original to her, but the idea is, okay, if you've got the transpersonal world already has the concepts of spiritual emergence and spiritual emergency, right? So the kind of the root word is already there. But the problem with the word spiritual is that for most of my clinical friends who may not have had much exposure to these kinds of experiences themselves in theory or practice might not know why your your limbs flapping out of control might be spiritual or seeing a bright light might necessarily be spiritual or having your body, you know, with a sense of dissolving or something might be spiritual or perceiving tingles or energy might necessarily be spiritual. What does that have to do with spirit? Or what is a spirit or they all that language might confuse them. And yet the language of emergence, so the concept of emergence, which also comes from like, you know, um, chaos math, mathematics and physics and biology, we have, and, and, you know, systems theory, we have a number of fields that already have this notion that there are complex things that emerge out of, you know, complex systems that are not necessarily that easy to predict or understand from what you know about the system, right? Like, why is there the red dot swirling around on Jupiter and it just keeps being there? Why doesn't it kind of dissolve and it's just this big red storm that's been swirling around? You know, based on the physics of, you know, methane and whatever makes up, you know, its atmosphere and, you know, thermodynamics, you might not necessarily predict that, but there it is. And so we don't really know what these things are you know, they, they're clearly emerging out of a very complex system. And so we thought that the, the same kind of language of emergence and emergent phenomena that was already being used in other scientific endeavors really seems to apply here. And it's just a very clear neutral term that not only has that level of connection to uh, branches of science that are, and math that already exist, but ties back to like the transpersonal literature, just dropping a tomb that might be disorienting or confusing for some people, particularly those coming from more of a materialist bent on things, which obviously is some non-trivial number of scientists and clinicians. Well, the term emergent implies that something is emerging. What is emerging? Wow. And here's where we get into... um uh Yeah, obviously. So there's a, there's a number of ways to take on that question. The simple way is to take it on in a phenomenological level and sort of a naturalistic approach, right? This is, this is the less challenging of the various ways I could attempt to answer that question. And so we have a very naturalistic approach to emergent phenomena, very much in the same way that the naturalists wandered out into the jungle or the desert or the ocean and they just kind of described what they saw there. Um, we're doing the same thing for emergent phenomena. Like if you want to understand like how an ecosystem works, first you need to describe all the components of the ecosystem and understand the compo components of those things. And th the only way to figure out a carbon cycle is to, to have identified a lot of places that carbon might go, for example. And so in the same kind of way, we're taking a very naturalistic approach to just what people describe because the clinical approach is obviously very common with first-person methods. 
signs and symptoms, you know, what people describe and what you can see and what you can measure. So, and luckily, because we have new neuroimaging technology, we can measure things. So I could answer this from a phenomenological point of view. What's emerging is this vast range of very interesting experiences. You know, that is a huge topic. And we're going to have basically a phone book, I think, at the end of what we call the Phenomenology Project. And that hopefully will, based on other things that are emerging, which are, you know, neurobiochemical and neurophenomenological that we can measure um, uh, with things, hopefully some of that will be grouped into taxonomies, right, that hopefully has some loose relationship to underlying biology. We're not saying, you know, brain is mind or anything like that. But clearly, there's some connection, right, of some sort, so it appears from a functional clinical level. And um, so th- so then what's emerging are hopefully categories of things that y- you can say, well, this is kind of like a peak experience or whatever we want to call it. This is a challenging experience. This is a, a movement thing. This is, you know, we can, who knows? Well, that'll have to emerge out of the data, still a work in progress. We have a lot of maps to draw on of previous people who have attempted to map this territory, usually using linguistic and ontological choices that don't scale globally very well, unfortunately, but very interesting work. And so what's also emerging from another point of view, and this is where I stand on shakier ground is the wrong word, but this is where it would be nice to have some better science on this from a Daniel 2 and Daniel 3 point of view, is hopefully some sort of developmental process of something eventually in some broad strokes getting better. Now, I don't think that's always true. I've had people who have had incredibly challenging experiences in this sort of territory, some to the point of committing suicide. So like, I don't mean to make light, uh, you know, um, of the challenges, but the general idea is that if this can be properly supported and goes well, it's reported again and again across traditions that this could be beneficial from a public health, mental health functional, pro-social, um, health, you know, uh, physical health, et cetera, point of view. And so hopefully what's emerging is some increased appreciation of, you know, sort of semi-timeless things and or even that kind of a phrase can get you in trouble, right? Because each of the traditions um, has its idea of what might be emerging, um, salvation in some variety, for example. Right. Or a sense of oneness or peace, or like you say, a dark night of the soul that sure. needs to be explored or wants to be, you know, is, is beckoning one forward. Yep. In mainstream Western medicine, it primarily focuses on pathology. How do you see that this emergent phenomena and bringing more attention to it can assist in that regard? There's, again, a lot of answers to that question. I'll start with the simplest one and the easiest one. There are a number of conditions that, having seen them arise so repeatedly on, say, intensive meditation retreats in predictable patterns, I'm pretty sure are somehow related to meditative, attentional, spiritual, mystical, magical development. For example, TMJ pain and some trapezius rhomboid spasmy things arising in certain phases of meditation is relatively straightforward. Restless leg syndrome arising at certain places on the path, that's another one. Uh, I actually think some of, a number of the things that are typically classified as bipolar are going to end up looking very, like we're going to say, well, there's kind of like, I, I get the sense we're going to kind of end up with a spectrum with some overlap, that there's like spiritual highs and lows, bipolar highs and lows, and maybe mixed things. I don't know what that's going to end up looking like, but something like that is my predictive guess just based on my clinical experience with these things and personal meditative experience. Um, like I, I think the categories such as schizophrenia and schizotypal in particular are going to need some modification. 
right? Uh, what psychosis is, is probably going to need some expansion and modification. And there are these sort of weird qualifiers. So thanks, thanks tremendously to Lukoff, Lou and Turner, who in the early nineties managed to get what I call the spiritual exemption criteria into the DSM, right? So if you look in the DSM in the previous version and some, and at least two previous versions, I think, and its current version, you will find the, you know, it's like, hey, if you're having a weird experience, but it's considered normal in your spiritual tradition and you're otherwise functionally okay, maybe that's not mental illness. Few clinicians are actually very comfortable using those, but they exist. So there are these, but they have never been well qualified, quantified, defined, given clear training guidelines, like, you know, sort of like Nord, right? So in pediatrics, there's this book called Nord, and it's like the, the atlas of all the weird genetic metabolic, et cetera, diseases that you almost never see. But when you see one, there's nothing so helpful as this book, right? And they're not that common, but they're they're in there and you can go, oh, they have this thing and you can find, oh, this thing and it responds like this and you give them D10 IV fluids and you avoid this and, you know, whatever. And these are the common things you might see. So in that same kind of way, for what I call the spiritual exemption criteria, the, the, the Nord equivalent or the phone book was never written of all the interesting things that the traditions might consider normal. And the average clinician has no idea what in the world these might be, right? So, and even the average practitioner. So for example, I'm guessing, you know, within the Catholic tradition as just one of many fascinating examples, because it's a pretty mystical tradition in many ways, um, it, in some of its forms, right? But if, you know, if you ask the average Catholic, are, you know, are the things that say St. John or, you know, some of, you know, um, some interior castle describe or some of these, you know, books and references, are those normal experiences? Well, they would never have heard of them and wouldn't even know. And certainly the average practicing psychiatrist wouldn't know that um, those might actually be considered things that might happen within the tradition that might not be considered abnormal as one of many possible examples. And so that kind of technical, clinical, phenomenological knowledge that can actually help the DSM do what it says it's supposed to be doing um, and actually help give exemptions and exceptions for the range of possible experiences that might be considered normal in the traditions, um, that that's something that's never been done. And so that's one of the ways that we think pathological diagnoses um, and, and the whole world of that, of nosology, as that's called, can be enhanced by what we're doing. You've mentioned the term maps a few times. Can you share what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not talking about um, maps, the, the the group that's trying to promote psychedelics, although I'm, I'm a big fan. So th thanks to that group. What, what I mean by maps in this case are the maps of spiritual terrain or development. So nearly every spiritual tradition, even the ones that try to be non-mappy, like Zen, still have words like Kensho and Satori, or like the stages of insight in the Theravada, or the Bhumis in the Tibetan, or like the, you know, the Sufi tradition has like Journey to the Lord of Power by Ibn Arabi, and the transpersonal traditions have the maps of the Grafs, for example, and Jack Kornfield, you know, you can find a number of maps in A Path with Heart, and you can find maps of spiritual terrain, and like, as I mentioned earlier, St. John of the Crosses, uh, works. You can find maps all over the place. In the Western magical traditions, you can find maps of development and, and Kabbalah, however you want to pronounce it. Then you can find, you know, the tree of life in these developmental maps. And then each of them have their like challenging aspects and, or, or sort of more broad than that, like Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, for example, which seems to cut across a lot of these in a general sort of a way. 
right? And then you, so these are kind of broad categories. And then you have some traditions that get super detailed about like, like some of the Taoist energetic maps or so, some of the Chinese uh, Qi related maps in particular, or some of the Vedantic maps or some of the Tantric maps of territories, or th- there are all these different maps because people have noticed patterns, right? It's part of what the mind does. We notice patterns. And then if you look at enough of these maps, you can start to see patterns within these patterns. Right. And you can start to see that some of the maps can kind of look alike in some of their particulars and might even suggest similar things or sometimes very different things for the same kind of territory and give sometimes very similar and sometimes very different interpretations. And so those are the kinds of interesting things we have to build on. But to bring all of that fascinating developmental technology into the 21st century, into the mainstream clinical world is going to take a tremendous amount of really careful phenomenology, neuroimaging science, you know, prospective trials of people doing various practices and sort of rebuilding them from scratch in contemporary times, because that's what the mainstream clinical world needs in terms of its epistemological criteria. And we need to do that. And then once we do that, we need to figure out how to language it in a way that scales. The, the, the sort of the questions I'm constantly thinking about are what works as well in Riyadh as Rome, as Reno, as, you know, rural Alabama, where I currently sit talking to you. And that's, that's a real koan because, you know, I have a, an appreciative envy of things like the world of biological taxonomy or of engineering, chemistry, mathematics, where there's a really globally, nearly everybody's using a plus symbol the same way. You know, you know, xenon is just xenon and that's what people call it with maybe some subtle linguistic variants. You know, the chemical symbols are all the same, right? So they really did a great job. And, you know, even in the world of taxonomy, which is not a closed system, right? It's an expansile thing where you can add new species as you find them and reclassify things and, and, and that kind of world. I think we need something like that for the world of this stuff in language that scales. Moving toward uniform or universal terminology. Yeah, to the degree that we can have that. And then the big stumbling block to that is that most terminology currently has some sort of notion of ontology built into it, right? And as soon as you get into ontologies, what this means, right? You you experience a feeling of, you know, boundless connection and love. And then the traditions all want to add their their thing on that? Is that suddenly Christ consciousness? Is that being touched by the spirit? Is that Buddha nature? Is that, you know, you know, pick your favorite thing you could call that, right? And then suddenly the religious traditions get very particular. But if you can stay out of the question of ontology, we have this notion that there's going to be what I'll call a rough clinical perennialism. Because like, if you see a bright white light in your spiritual practice, there's really only one pathway that that can be, right? From, from a neurobiological point of view. And, you know, if you look at the maps of traditions, that tends to occur at semi-specific stages of development of concentration or contemplation or peak experiences or something, right? And you see a lot of kind of semi-convergence on some of those things, uh, those designations map-wise. And so we think what will emerge if we have enough good data and can look at it cleanly and neutrally enough is that there will be this sort of rough clinical perennialism that will scale in the same way that appendicitis care scales or migraine care scales. Um, and we think something of this will be able to scale. What is the pathway that the light comes in through that you're referring to? Well, I'm still talking about like specifically the phenomena of seeing a bright white light, for example. 
So light, again, even just me using that word, right? So the word light in a spiritual context could mean illumination. It could mean insight. It could mean something of the divine. It could mean something of cosmic awareness or consciousness. Or I could just be talking about seeing a bright white color, right? And if you're seeing a bright white color, then one way or another, the optical system is going to be involved, something of the retina, something of the occipital lobe, something of some of the, you know, the, the optic chiasm and the pathways. Somewhere in that system, something's going to be going on, right? Yeah, you're a, you're a physician, so you understand the occipital lobe, and not all of our listeners do, yeah. Sure, and, and so... Right, exactly. And so, but, but even just using the word, right, there's a lot of different ways that people could have interpreted that. And that's the kind of clarification we need. So we have precise terms and we have a sense of what we're actually talking about. Um, at least to the degree that we can. I had an interesting experience several times. I worked as an integrative medicine practitioner at a major hospital in Minneapolis and. We provided energy healing, which I know is also there's different terminology for energy healing. And I would find out the person's belief or if they had a particular religious or spiritual background before I would work with them or I'd simply ask them. And for those who were Catholic, they would consider that the light that I was assisting them with was the Holy Spirit. And for those who were maybe didn't have any particular belief, would just look at it as energy from the universe. Yeah. And so what we hope, given that, that we're not going to change the world's beliefs and religions as, as very, very, as exactly as you were just demonstrating, we think that good clinical care involves the ability to meet patients where they are, um, work with their ontological frames and their conceptual overlay and their interpretations of reality in exactly that kind of skillful way. Right. And, and unfortunately, I think most of the projects that have attempted to do this before didn't really adopt that kind of clinical, what I'll call ontological neutrality or agnost agnosticism that gives a lot of space. And because of that, these solutions didn't scale, right? And so we're very driven by the concepts of medical ethics. First of um, autonomy, which involves informed consent, which involves high quality data on risk benefits and alternatives of whatever you're doing, right? And then doing good, avoiding harm. But the last one, justice and equity, Right, which is what scales. How do you scale this and get this to every but people everywhere? For that one, I think that the only pathway we see forward, and maybe there's one we don't see, but involves that kind of clinical sensibility of help working with people's interpretive frameworks and cultures and traditions. And we think that's also going to help this not just be another colonial top down, uh, a bunch of people in some, you know, powerful country telling people in the rest of the world how it's going to be and how reality is. Right. So we hope this doesn't become one of those projects. And instead, that's one, we have a lot of, you know, we have part of one of our projects is the anthropology project that will help us figure out how to meet the needs and work with the frameworks of a whole lot of different groups and players across various systems and levels and layers. Mm -hmm. As a physician, can you share a story of how you saw an individual who would have been served better? had the practitioners been more educated and aware about emergent phenomena? Yeah. So I have a, I hung out a shingle somewhere in the late nineties that said, if you're having weird spiritual experiences, I will talk with you about those and won't even take a donation for it. And when you do that, you get to hear 
thousands of, and you keep it out for 25 years or however long it's been, you get to hear thousands of stories of people's adventures in this kind of territory, right? And we all learned from each other and they helped teach me and I provided my opinion, you know, hopefully it was helpful sometimes at least. And what what I also got to hear is um, probably 30 to 50 people a year at this point I hear who had these kind of experiences um, told a healthcare provider and uh, that usually went unbelievably badly, right? So the general the general trend is they they tell a healthcare provider they like go on an intensive retreat or take a psychedelic or it just happens to them spontaneously sometimes in childbirth in some powerful traumatic moment and some other moment of like you know something amazing happening and then woof and all of a sudden it opens them up and they you know there's a lot of ways into this territory right. And, and then they're not prepared for that or ready for that, or they're concerned by that, or they're fine with it, but a family member who they tell is super concerned about it, right? So it's not always them. And then somehow the mental health care system gets involved. And the typical thing is to be told you're bipolar or psychotic or, um, you know, schizotypal and or broken for life and or will need meds for life, put on antipsychotics, antidepressants, seizure medications, you know, to try to control as mood stabilizers, lithium. And, and so that's the, the sort of general trend I see. And obviously healthcare providers generally, I hope, did not go into this to be ignorant and harmful. But unfortunately, in this particular case, they are. And so for them to meet their aspirations to be healers and to be highly knowledgeable and very skilled in, in understanding what's going on, I think it's imperative that the EPRC and its allies do the work we're all doing, the work you're doing, et cetera, to try to raise awareness of these issues and help everybody who aspires to do better to do better. Well, the education in academia seems to continue to echo itself. And it sounds like you're, and that's why we're doing what we're doing on New Thinking Aloud is helping to interrupt the awareness and the education of these experiences and phenomena. Yeah. And the world of academia, it definitely has this sort of echo chamber thing. And it's going to be part of the solution, right? Because if it's incredibly sophisticated, analytical and conceptual uh, research, et cetera, you know, historical um, capabilities, right? No question. It also, just like science, has that sort of echo chambery scientism materialist shut down, closed minded thing going on. It's been pointed out a number of times. Um, but weirdly enough, we actually think we're going to get some of our greatest traction with like the MBAs and the legal system and people like that. Because having worked in healthcare administration, I can tell you that all kinds of strange and unusual things can happen if it will improve quality metrics, like and if it will get people their holiday bonuses. The people running the show, right? Oh, we, we got patients off beds faster. We, we saved money on, you know, pharmaceuticals so we didn't have to medicate so many people. We, we kept people, you know, we, we didn't, you know, tie up, you know, precious psych beds that needed to be. We didn't cause bottlenecks in the ER. We didn't, you know, clog up the whatever clinics. We didn't, you know, order a whole lot of MRIs and CAT scans that we didn't need to order. We didn't, you know, get sued by someone whose rights we took away, who was really pissed off about that. You know, these, these are the kinds of, uh, critical, um, I think leverage points that if people have totally left out, like you never hear those mentioned in them, in these conversations. And I can guarantee you the academics are not going to change the system. The MBAs and the legal climate changing will. And so it's actually, we're, we're very focused on outcomes and wellness. And can you actually demonstrate that you're really helping people and improving patient satisfaction scores or clinicians ratings or whatever it is? And so that's, those are the kinds of real world leverage points 
from a very real politic point of view. And national health services, we think, will be very interested in this. Because, you know, if you can increase resilience and reduce, you know, errors in diagnosis and medication costs and things like that, we think we're going to make a big difference in terms of helping healthcare systems to relate to all of these much better. And from a really big picture point of view, if, if you hold the kind of global, you know, climate based soteriological view, more emergence leads to more appreciation of interconnection and compassion and less greed and hatred, maybe lower carbon footprints and less psychopathy and maybe, you know, saves the planet. Then, you know, that's the other kind of like big, big global leverage point that having these things flourishing with a healthcare system, which is antithetical to their very existence and the, their progression, um, that obviously doesn't work very well. And so we need to remove kind of the hard ceiling of these practices scaling and doing what they hopefully are capable of doing at their very best um, to help the world just be a kinder, better place. Here in the U.S., healthcare, while yes, it's a service, it is I've come to learn really primarily a business. And what you're offering is that these organizations, institutions want to know that it's going to help their bottom line. Yep. Help their satisfaction scores, bottom line, quality metrics, legal liability. Um, yeah. Their marketing. <laughs> yep. That's true. And if you can market, Hey, we're a really sophisticated center of helping people, you know, to build high, high degree capacity wellness and consciousness transformation and to help people with skill sets relating to phenomena that I know for certain large numbers of people are incredibly uncomfortable telling their care providers, even though they might be a major part of what's going on. I, I you know, I, I've spoken with psychiatrists who say I have never ever seen anybody with an emergent phenomena in my decades of clinical practice. And I'm like, yeah, you have. You just had no idea because they read you and they said, I'm not going to tell you what's going on. Right. And we, this is definitely true. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and so we think that there will, yeah, that's sort of the, and then there's the Tesla approach and the Tesla approach, Tesla first started with really high end sports cars, right? Sort of the Tesla model is, you know, the wealthy already have access to a lot of deep spiritual practitioners to ayahuasca and, you know, healing with MDMA and psilocybin and these, you know, 5-MEO and these retreats and deep shamanic work and healing and these, you know, advanced spiritual teachers who are very happy to take their, you know, large amounts of money. And, you know, there there's already exists at, at a higher level, you know, sort of outside of the clinical sort of baseline level mainstream, what I will call an enhanced level of care. That while not based on anything like the levels of data quality and underlying physiology and neutral language and outcome studies and anything that we would like still beats what the clinical mainstream has. And we think that the clinical, the, the, the ordinary person who doesn't have access to all that is going to want it because we, we think it's a better thing. And obviously the, the elite think it's a good thing. And that's why they promote having access to it. Right. And so we think that will eventually trickle down in the way that many other things trickle down. But we don't think it, like, um, but without actually doing all the science and doing the hard lobbying and doing all the other things to make that happen, we don't think it's just going to trickle down from that, what I'll call relatively elite system. Right. And, and so uh, there's a whole lot of other stuff that needs to happen to get it again, to meet the, the qualities of justice and equity, to get this to everybody. Um, that's what we need to do. Mm hmm. And how did we get to the place where a psychiatrist has had a whole career 
and doesn't recognize that they have been supporting people who are having, in a lot of cases, very normal, natural, and even healthy experiences. Yeah, um, salutary in all senses of the word. Um, how in the world does that happen? Well, for example, if, if you just read the DSM and you know, even if you read the phrases about the little spiritual exemption phrases, they tell you nothing you can do anything with clinically. And if you read your diagnostic codes and what you're allowed to bill for, there's literally nothing useful. I've been through, I've been through, you know, done countless searches on the whole massive database of ICD 10 and 11. There's nothing useful there, right? And so the textbooks of emergency psychiatry, there's nothing emergency medicine, there's nothing neurology. They, they would never have been trained in any of this. It's on no board certification criteria. It's on, it's on, it's in no textbooks. If you take a class on this in medical school, you know, which I did, I actually took some night class electives in alternative healthcare. And even those had almost had really abysmal data quality, no integration into the system, no, no sense of differential diagnosis of when you use them and when you didn't. Like there was no comparative if you use this versus if you use a conventional approach. So you could make an informed decision as a clinician and or help your patients make an informed decision of which approach to take. There was none of that. And so those are all the kinds of things that we really need to do in order to truly have an integral approach. Because at the moment, they're two kind of fragmented parallel systems, and they don't get treated anything like the same way. And so e even if you're a really kind, thoughtful, intelligent person going into healthcare wanting to know things and help people, the, the system as it currently stands is not designed to help you recognize any of this. And as you recognize, as you go from like your early clinical years to being in a res you know, residency and then later on, the eye can't see what the brain doesn't know. And so like... If, if you haven't been taught this, it's very hard to understand. Oh, wait a second. Their thyroid's a little bit big. Check that out. Like where you might not have noticed it, but now, you, oh, I wonder if I should check a, oh, maybe that's why they're, you know, and so these kinds of things, you know, where as you, you have something that is, that has helped prime you to see patterns that you otherwise might not see. And, and those patterns can be super useful as countless books on this stuff have demonstrated. My question was how do we get, have a psychiatrist who has a whole career who is not recognizing when someone is having what might be considered, <laughs> if we could say, normal mystical experiences or what you're terming as emergent phenomena? How did, how did we get to this place where it is so, uh, pathologized? Wow. The history of that is actually fascinating. And I'm going to first refer you to a book by Brian Spittle. So go, go, um, you can look on Eon Books, A-E-O-N Books, and look up Brian Spittle's and his recent book about psychosis and psychospiritual considerations. It's a brilliant book on the subject, and I highly recommend it. And it actually walks through the history of all of the criteria for psychosis, for example, and how we got them and what is the long history going back into the 1800s. So I, you should just interview him and he can tell the story, right? Because he'll do it vastly better than me. He's got a PhD in this, right? This is his PhD thesis. So I'm just going to leave that to him. But I can give you a kind of a thumbnail sketch of some key milestones. So the first thing is going back to the axial age. All of these debates were alive then. Materialism, monism, dual aspect monism, you know, non-duality, you know, divine consciousness. These, these are at least 25 to 2800 year old debates and probably much older than that. So there's nothing new about these, tr these kind of 
traditions warring with each other, or it's all gods, or it's all, you know, what there's like, or one god, or no gods, or there's nothing new about any of this. Or we are the gods. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. So we're God. Yeah, exactly. So there, so there's nothing new about that. But what some critical developments that did happen that really skewed things towards the materialist side of things were one Galileo, which is this notion that science is about what we can measure. And that was an important thing, right? It's not that it didn't have its points, but it's a limiting view. And actually, the cool thing is now with some neuroimaging, we can start to kind of measure stuff we couldn't before about experience. So that's that's kind of fun. But, you know, for a long time, for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, and then obviously the unreasonable success of things like mathematics, of Newton, of the notion of the clockwork universe, of, you know, there were a lot of things that really promoted this materialist view of the, you know, extraordinarily successes of biochemistry, of pharmacology, of you know, physiology and understanding, you know, detailed anatomy, like the number of amazing transformations that were just absolutely revolutionary and life-saving and, you know, uh, that came out of materialist views and looking at reality through that lens are staggering, right? So that, right? And then you have Freud, who, while he was into things like dreams, was super not into religion and spirituality, and, you know, basically said that's all neurotic or psychotic. Yeah, you might have cool dreams that might influence you, but no, this, right? And then you've got, um, I'll just pick out a few other really important ones, B.F. Skinner, right? And the behavioralists that basically said, you're just operant conditioning of carrots and sticks, and you're basically a walking automaton that believes it's consciousness and you're, you're conscious and your experience itself is actually an illusion. And, you know, you are actually just a purely mechanical thing. And so, and that was really, really powerful and still like the, the, the implications of the behavioral, behavioralists. And then we have like the constructionists, like which, which did this sort of interesting thing of it's almost like kind of like mind only, but then the like totally nihilistic version of that, right? Where like, you know, you are creating your reality, but it's all utterly arbitrary and just purely cultural conditioned and none of it is really meaningful. It's just the arbitrary nature of the sign. And then the logical positivists were a little bit before them. And so you, you get like, you know, there were a lot of various movements, all of which make interesting points. And it's not like any of these, it's not like they didn't make some important and interesting points. Each of them have their individual truths and uses. But taken together, and that within the incredible efficacy of better living through chemistry, which really began in, in the 50s and really took off in the 60s and 70s, particularly with, you know, the anti-anxiety drugs and the, the benzos and then the, the typical antipsychotics and the atypical ones and then the SSRIs and this whole sort of notion that really this is chemical imbalances and, and you know, it, we, and and so some of which is starting to be kind of looked at more critically as we we go back and examine decades of data on the the pros and cons of those sorts of viewpoints now but but that's a part of how we got here and the the influence of these on the DSM was striking so if particularly if you look at the DSM 1 and 2 versus the DSM 3 4 5 right there's this real transition away from like psychodynamics and psychotherapy and sort of interior explanations way more to just diagnoses that lead to management that lead to meds right and so that was that was an important shift that took place and and it's amazing how weirdly um the the staggering hegemony of that like for example like there was a movement in the 70s like you know meta meta psychiatry and ultra consciousness led by Stanley Dean that nobody's ever heard of who I've ever talked to except a few old people like and it was incredible and it was attempting to integrate all of these things and they had you know big conferences with hundreds of people attending and a decade of work and then it just disappeared 
Like, you know, and, and who's heard of it? Nobody. Like, and so right around that time when it disappeared is when the DSM was being highly modified and the, the success of the pharmaceutical companies and those lobbies and these views was so powerful. And it gave people an amazing sense of security. And here's a problem we can solve and we can know it and we can understand it. And it's not all weird and messy like spirituality is and these interior phenomena. Ah, to heck with that. We don't need to be listening to these people. Just figure out what the right meta is, tweak a bit, and then you're good to go. Right. And we thought that was going to be really efficient and effective and psychotherapy is expensive and these people are weird and, you know, that. And, you know, I, I get it kind of, but it's just got tremendous numbers of problems. What are your thoughts on all that? You've been through part of this history. You've studied this. What's your take on how we ended up here? Well, I mean, absolutely everything that you've just shared. And I think that while you were talking, I haven't had this thought before that a lot of healthcare is focused on fixing a problem. And so when you focus on fixing a problem, you're not looking necessarily at what is working well. And so I think that hyper focus on what is wrong can really uh, highlight how things have become really pathologized. You know, for example, myself as an occupational therapist, a person isn't going to come on my caseload if they're functioning well in our current medical model, although I'd love to see that happen, or because we know the science has shown that prevention and wellness is is real and that we can prevent, you know, I think the last stat I saw was 80% of chronic conditions. When we focus on what's wrong, then we want those fixes. And I think that it's been the push and the pull between the practitioner and the client of the practitioner wanting to provide something that will help an individual and the individual wanting help and that pressure for that to occur. And quite frankly, we're humans. We don't always want to take the long, laborious path or the more challenging path. We want something that's quick. And so I think that pharmaceuticals have really served a purpose in that area. And I think that uh, the cynical part of me sometimes says that there are certain powers that want people to be unwell so they can continue to, um, quite frankly, make money off of people having, quote, problems. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I think that there's some elements that might be at play that continue to have people being pathologized for some of these experiences. Yeah, I think those are all really good thoughts. And um, there is clear, in, in, you know, industry evidence that what you're saying is also true. So the, the cynicism and the sort of sense of paranoia, it's not actually paranoia if they're out to get you. There are documented incidences where clearly systems were invested in having more sick patients or you know, longer care times or whatever it is, because that's how they made money, right? That That's, yeah, they're, they're, this is a thing sometimes, right? Hopefully not a, a lot of the thing, but it's certainly some part of the thing. Yeah. Right, no question. And business models that involve, oh, now someone's messed up and we can continue to sell them some product over a long time. And now we have a captive audience and customer. Obviously, those that's where the market incentives are. And as we know, through market incentives, market incentives have real impact on what, um, how uh, corporations behave. Not that, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, for example, not to call them out, hasn't done some incredibly amazing things. I mean, the number of lives I saved because of the unbelievable products of the pharmaceutical industry is nearly all of them. How many lives did I save that didn't involve something impressive about pharmacology? None, right? That was all of the lives I saved had something to do with super cool medicines, right? So that's, that's true. But the other side is also true. And so, 
um, have a weird mix of profound and amazed gratitude and yet cynicism about uh, those, those industries, both equally living in me at the same time. And I think those are reasonable responses. The system is currently set up to make money off of sick people, not off of well people. Well, and when you say the system, the U.S. is almost unique in that kind of weird way, right? Because a lot of other countries have nationalized healthcare systems where they have a different incentive structure. They're incentivized to keep people out of their system and not give them, you know, expensive things. We actually think this is one of the, the real use cases, right? Because I at least noticed in my own life the, the amount of, of mental sort of bio, sort of mind, brain, whatever resilience that came out of the deep practices that I did was astounding. And so like, I'm incredibly grateful for what they allowed me in terms of increased resilience. And the other thing is when you mentioned that when people are well, they don't necessarily seek out and reach out and do things. It kind of depends on what you mean well, because like I get questions all the time from highly functional people that are asking me, hey, should I burn my two weeks vacation on an intensive meditation retreat you know, doing this practice and they only get two weeks in the year and they're going to use all of it for this thing. And they're, they're fine. They're functional. They're happy. They're good people, but they want something more. They have this need to, to, to go deeper or they're called or compelled or inspired to, to learn something, a lot of different motivating factors, you know, and they'll ask like, should I do an intensive meditation retreat or should I go down to Peru and do a whole bunch of ayahuasca or whatever it is and hang out with the shamans and see what they tell me and, and have some of these journeys or, you know, what should I do? Should I do this super intensive yoga training, you know, and with juice fasting and whatever it is. And, and, and what I would really like as someone who sometimes tries to answer these questions is really high quality comparative data yeah. for people because I, I don't like, I can give my sort of best guesses based on like expert opinion of a skewed case set, you know, filtered through my own kind of fusion orthodoxy based on whatever, you know, books and stuff I've read, but it's nothing like what we would really like, which is highly high, you know, high quality comparative trials, sense of predisposing factors, who are the best candidates for these things? What are the risks? What could go wrong? What could go very right? How do you choose between them? You know, because th this is the consumer marketplace now of spirituality, and there's really no high-quality comparative data. I mean, to have so something like a consumer reports, as awful as that sounds for the spiritual micro marketplace, would still probably be better than the total, you know, undata-driven chaos that it currently is, right? Where if a clinician was asked the question that I get asked routinely, what should I do, Daniel? Should I do one of these things? I don't know. Like I can give my opinion, but it's just that. And I would love to base that on much better data. And I would dream of a world in which you could go to your doctor and say, hey, I'm thinking of doing a super intensive retreat versus doing a bunch of psychedelics versus doing whatever. And they could say something that is beyond just the current really unbelievably bad dogma that you would find in the text and really poor evidence quality. Because that's that kind of positive psychology and resilience and spiritual deepening that we also think it makes sense in some kind of way to have your healthcare provider as some part of this, as awful as that sounds, but the consequences of not having that are often really bad. Yeah. Well, I meant as far as people who are well and that they are not in the clinical criteria of needing to yet enter into the mainstream medical system. And yes, I meant here in the U.S. Thank you for correcting me on that or clarifying that, uh, where insurance would be able to provide their care. And so you're right. People are seeking out uh, independent practitioners. It's a billion-dollar industry. Like you mentioned, the holistic integrative health and, and spiritual practitioners. Uh, many people are seeking that. And, and that's why it's wonderful to have you 
on as a guest. And for you being a, having worked as an emergency medical physician and also all the travels you've been in now, can you share a story about, um, a story that you feel can really sort of exemplifies this emergent phenomena or something that, that really has been propelling you forward and why you feel it's so important to get this good quality data? Well, the, if, if you're looking for a really interesting story, I'll tell you the most interesting NDE story I've got. And this is actually before I was a clinician. So I had gotten back from India where I did um, some volunteer service and a bunch of meditation. And I, I came back and I was, I was sort of thinking about going back to grad school. And so I started um, doing some things that might sort of lead in that kind of direction. It was like public health school versus MD. I ended up with both, as you can see my letters, but, um, but that was kind of the debate at the time. And I ended up doing some survey collection in the Durham VA. And there was a, a old guy there. And he said, after I had helped him with a survey about his nursing care, he said, why are you doing survey work? And I said, oh, I'm thinking about going back to medical school or grad school or public health school or something. And he said, well, you might be interested in my story. And I said, sure, what you got? And he said, well, I'm a very rare thing. I'm something called a flatliner. And I'm one of only a few people who have ever been documented to have this condition. And I um, have had my heart stop for four or five, six minutes at a time since I was a kid. And I would die and fall to the ground. And every time I would have an NDE, I would have a near-death experience. And then my heart would restart. And then I would come back. And I had probably 40 to 50 of them. Uh, before I got a pacemaker. And I was one of the first people ever to get an experimental uh, pacemaker put in. Um, and since then, it paces my heart through when it stops and I, I don't die anymore. But before that, I had every NDE you could ever imagine. And he said, I had the classic one where you float out of your body and you see the people freaking out and you feel the light and you go up the tunnel and there's your family and a sense of divine love and all, you know, that one. Right. He said, I had that one a bunch of times, but he also, he said, I, he had ones where he would go down to hell and there would be people screaming and being tortured and flames and stuff. But he said he had other experiences that didn't really fall on any of those maps. He said somewhere he went to, to like kind of alien worlds and landscapes that didn't make any sense. Somewhere he went to places with like abstract geometry and patterns that he, it was hard to make sense of. Um, and I said, wow, well, that's super interesting. I said, what's your takeaway? And he said, do not fear death. It will be fine. Now, obviously, that's a complicated thing to say. If anybody out there is suicidal, I, please, this is just one dude's opinion being relayed through me. So, like, you got to be very careful with these statements. But I, I found that a really interesting story. So I just tell it like it is and like he told it to me. So that's one of my most interesting of these. And as a physician, did you come across any of your patients who had this emergent phenomena that you recognize that maybe some of your other colleagues might not have? been able to see? Yes, there, there were a bunch. Um, and so th the HIPAA thing, I've got to be really super careful here, right? So that guy was not a patient of mine, and he was telling me the story freely. So that one, it doesn't apply. But the rest of them, um, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to say a whole lot other than yes. The answer is yes. Um, you see it. And then the thing is, I was working in a mainstream healthcare setting with mainstream options, and obviously the expect expectation of mainstream care so in that setting, that's what you provide. That's what the standard of care is. And so that's what I would do. 
But there was a part of me, like the Daniel one side of me, that was always like, oh, man, you, you, there's more to this story, but that's not really the place for it. And there wasn't the evidence quality for it or the support for it or any of that. And so re- this, this side of me really wished that Daniel 2 could do things that Daniel 1 had understood and that there was the evidence and the protocols and the diagnostic codes and things to back it up which currently there isn't. In the standards of care for all of this stuff, you're not going to find any of the alternative or, you know, emergent sort of focused stuff. It, it doesn't exist as far as I can tell. And so that's, that's what we're trying to establish. Do you think that these emergent phenomena deserve an actual diagnostic code? Oh, lots. A whole lot. But then, you, but then you're diagnosing someone versus just saying it's a normal part of their experience, perhaps? Well, so here's a complicated thing. So, for example, childbirth is a normal part of experience. It's something you diagnose all the time. This is a, you know, a, a pregnant mom who gave birth to a baby. That's just what What's happened. more natural than that? <laughs> right. What's more natural than that? And that, but yet that's something you could diagnose and or bill for. I don't mean to, the billing part, but like that's a thing. And so, do you see what I'm saying? So, right, in healthcare, it's how the system operates is what you're saying. Right. That's just the system. And and to be able to have options, because, because at the moment, like, you don't have any options that aren't basically broken for life and or really crazy and or really pathologizing. Whereas, like, childbirth is just something we do. That's how we're all here. And so the, the system has within it those kinds of concepts. We just need to play to that side of it. And also, some of the stuff can be really pathological in the functional sense. I don't mean to like, because people are like, this is awful. And I, this is really messing up my life. And I need help with this. So they themselves may self identify as this being a real problem. And so and functionally, you know, my definition of of mental health is almost entirely functional. And so like, if, if it's impairing function, whatever it is, then you know, and people are showing up for it and talking to a provider. That's something we want to help with. And then the other thing on the preventive side is this building and increased resilience. So also, I think the meditative practices and training and spiritual journey that I've, you know, have been go- going through and still going through um, has increased my level of resilience and capacity. And so it's also hard to imagine that people wouldn't be interested in that and that in that sort of way, like, and that there wouldn't be some, I hate to say it, market for that, God help us all, but you know what I mean. That people are interested in it. Yeah. Right. I mean, in, how do you be more functional? How do you be more resilient? How do be, you be more capable? How do you able to roll with the, the stressors of life? So for example, you know, if you go into medical school, you know, it, it basically doubles your risk of, of alcohol and drug addiction you know, uh, like maybe we work to solve something of that with providing other skill sets, like the ability to suddenly tune into large amounts of bliss and to calm down and to rejigger your energetic system would seem like thing, you know, reasonable alternatives to liver rounds, for example, as you might call them. And so like there, there should be a real straightforward identified need for some of this technology. And in fact, my most recent review of the textbook, Rosen's textbook of emergency medicine actually mentioned that you might do some meditative training and mindfulness to help cope with the stressors of an emergency medicine career, for example. So I was really heartened to see that, but there was also no mention in Rosen's textbook of all the wild and possibly very strange and easily misdiagnosed effects that mindfulness has been well you know, it came out of these traditions and books and it can pr- lead to some pretty interesting things. 
So like to then give this to clinicians as a benefit, but then not talk about the risks and how to decide and not have the technologies in place to deal with the meditative things that might arise if you're doing this practice well enough in a way that actually really does lead to the deep transformations that lead to the resilience promised, like that is missing something. And so like, even though like I'm, I'm a big fan of this getting into the textbooks, it's incomplete. Um, and it also isn't meeting basic, basic ethical standards of providing a clear thing of risk benefits and alternatives. And like, you know, if people say to me, doctor, you know, what could this medication do to me? Well, it could really heal you, but it could also cause diarrhea, maybe an allergic reaction. Well, good to know. Like, what happens if I get those things? Well, we have Benadryl and steroids for the allergic reaction. If you get the diarrhea, there's some antibiotics we can try for that or whatever, or probiotics or something, right? So, like, it's always good to have that level of conversation. And I think we need to be able to have that kind of just straightforward conversation and technologies in place about emergent technologies. All this neuro, neuro, you know, neurostimulation and like, you know, biofeedback and, and, you know, all the interesting things that we're getting people into. Um, we need something to handle it when it does weird things. And these things can do weird things. We're a complicated system and we need to be able to handle that in a sophisticated way. Well, going back to talking about diagnostic codes and uh, childbirth, it seems that perhaps the, even the ontology of a diagnostic code could use some metamorphosis. <laughs> yes, that is true. Maybe uh, it could be more interpreted as a really just the experience a person is having, and it's not necessarily good or bad. <laughs> Absolutely. In that same way that, you know, we could be very neutral about a number of, of things. And so, um, yes, uh, exactly. Like you might diagnose the onset of puberty, for example. That's just a thing, right? Is that <laughs> good or bad? Well, we could debate that, right? Depending on your experience in adolescence. But it's a, just a thing that happens, right? might have its pros and cons. But um, so I agree that the meta question of, of is medicine all, patholo all based on pathology? That's, yes, it, it, that's a big issue that is bigger structurally than we think we can reasonably take on. But hopefully we're one small aspect of contributing to that much bigger conversation. Mm -hmm. You as a physician, how would you evaluate and treat somebody just hypothetically if someone comes in and tells you that they Let's say that they had a dream and it just, they had some experience in a dream that came on spontaneously, or maybe they did intentionally go to a retreat or take a simple meditation or even a yoga class and had an experience where they started seeing images or maybe even hearing voices or seeing colors. And, you know, a lot of people don't even tell practitioners, like you mentioned earlier, because they're very afraid of being labeled with a mental health disorder, being called crazy, how would you work with an individual who presents that way? So that's a great question. Um, so I actually talked to a reasonable number of people like that, not in my capacity as a physician, but in my capacity as just some person on the internet who just happens to have a wide range of skill sets related to these things. And um that's actually typically a pretty long conversation, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions then I start asking. Tell me, you know, what happened before those experiences? What else happened during those experiences? How long did they last? How were you reacting to them then? How are you reacting to them now? Like, what kind of tradition frameworks are you coming from? Like, what kind of conceptual background are you coming from? How did you interpret this? 
if you were on a retreat or in some spiritual context, did you tell the person who was leading the retreat or something what happened? And, and if so, how did they interpret it? What kind of advice did they give you? Did you follow that advice? What happened when you followed that advice? If they you know, conceptualized it through a certain framework, how did that sit with you in your gut, in your heart? How did you relate to that? You know, what happened after these things? Was there some then noticeable change before and after it in you in some other way across some other domain with regard to relationships or career or vocation or function or sleep or your body or your identity or something? You know, did it shift paradigms, right? Where you had sort or like cause you to question any paradigms? Are there parts of you, if it did cause you to question or shift paradigms, are there parts of you that now still aren't on board with that paradigm shift? How did your family react to this? Like, so there's a whole lot of, you know, like, how's, how's your diet? How are you exercising? How are you feeling? Like, there's a whole lot of other questions I tend to ask. This tends to be like an hour and a half conversation, right? So it's not quick. And the other thing I ask is a lot of things about goals. Like when you were coming to me, were you wanting normalization? Were you wanting it to go away? Were you wanting more of it? Were you wanting to know how potentially to relate to it? Were you having other troubles? Like, what are your goals coming to me to have this conversation? Was this, was this part of your spiritual ideals? And like, or was this like your idea of mental illness? Right. And, and so there, there's a lot and each of those could take a while. So th the first thing I do is I have that conversation and then that leads to a whole lot of other things, right? Yeah, it's not just a simple answer, but it, it's helping, I think, our our audience recognize that <laughs> most practitioners, not only are they not aware or educated in these phenomena, but they also, many of them don't have the time currently in our current, at least here in the U.S., healthcare system to take the time with uh, the individual that they need to really sort out what might be going on for a person. Yeah, that 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 both point of like time constraints, which is a huge one. So, but there are solutions for this and there are situations. So for example, again, I'm giving a pathologizing example, but like in, in the ER, when you would have um, uh, sexual assault and we had nurses at, that were trained in doing that evaluation in a, in a very skillful, um, medically thorough, uh, legally thorough, um, uh, psychologically and culturally sophisticated way, which is not quick. And so we would usually cl clear them of just basic, like, you know, did they get beat up or did they something, you know, horrible like that happened to them? And then if they're cleared to go to the, this other person and they would have the time for the much bigger workup, the other conversations about referrals and safety and evidence collection and uh, all of that, right? Social work involvement and, and, and that was a long thing. And we could call them in and they could do that, which was awesome, right? The fact that we had these in the ERs where I, I worked was just amazing, right? There was an incredible resource. And I, I, I dream of a universe in which the same kind of thing is available for this stuff, where you have people, some, some specialty is going to, or a few specialties are going to have to own this. And, and because it is not a quick thing to do well, they're going to have to have some way to referral, refer, stabilize something, ship so, something, right? So in the same kind of way, when I was working in a little ER, and like, I didn't have the capacity to handle the complicated triple, you know, dissecting aortic aneurysm that came to me. I knew where to send it and what to do before I sent that and how to arrange that, that shipping in the same kind of way. And again, I don't mean to pathologize all this stuff because it can be beautiful and profound and whatever, but 
that's this, you know, if I'm talking about the healthcare system and analogies in that same kind of way, we need, you know, because there's, there's been a big debate in the world I swirl in. And the big debate is, can people who have not experienced this diagnose it? Or do you need people who have deep depths of meditative experience or spiritual experience with this stuff to diagnose and manage it? And I think in the same kind of way that I've never had a migraine, but I got really good at figuring out complex migraines, which can present all kinds of super weird ways, right? Or Lyme disease or lupus or Kawasaki's. Or giving birth to a baby. <laughs> sure, right. Which is can be really complicated, right? I had never given birth to a baby and yet I was able to help assist with deliveries in that same kind of way. I think that the clinicians who have never experienced any of this stuff, because they can get super good at weird pattern recognition and subtle findings. And wait a second. And, and, and if at least they could go like a, a substantial upgrade would be like they go, that's one of them weird emergent things. We're going to send you to the emergence people like that would thrill me. Right. That that in of itself, you know, like I don't know what it is, but they do. Y'all have fun. You know, <laughs> That would be a massive upgrade. And I would be so excited about that. At the same time, psychic functioning and intuitive abilities are really a natural birthright for most of us. And in our healthcare system, since we're prim primarily talking about healthcare here today, there is a way that we can help people tap into their abilities to help them in their lives. Yes. No doubt. And so again, that's that, 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 so we have like through the EPRC, the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium, this organization we founded to do all this research and, and all the pr promotion and, you know, all this linguistics and all the stuff we need to, to accomplish this project. Um, that's, that's sort of built into what we call the practice project. And so the practice project is for the positive abilities, the sense of tuning in, the ability to, to enhance one's experience of life or validate things that can be very skillful or useful, right? That's that side of it. So if we have the, the, you know, pathology side, diagnosis project and management project, and then the practice project, and the practice project is for all of these things, figuring out how, how people can draw on their natural capacities for healing, resilience, wisdom, intuition, um, and deeper and more complicated abilities and experiences, which could be a whole podcast. Maybe we can explore that in another episode. Yeah. You have also written a whole book on Buddhist meditation practices as a physician and one who's deep into this. What can you say about the benefits of meditation? Of course, there might also be challenges with them. And also, I recognize this could be a whole other conversation, and hopefully you and I can have another conversation about this as well. But if you can just highlight some areas for us here today. Thank you for mentioning that that could be a huge topic. So what I'm going to say is incredibly summary and might sound very trite. So, uh, but some really basic things. Uh, like for in medical school, the fact that I could you know, when I needed a, a break or a pause or re refreshing because I had learned how to get into states that in the tradition I come from, they call jhanas. I could just close my eyes, drop down into states of stillness, peace, bliss, tranquility in seconds. And that was a, a cool skill that I learned that my, I was looking at my colleagues and they just hadn't trained in that particular skill, but lots of them could do it. You know, if they, if they figured out how to tune the mind that way, and maybe some of them could naturally. I don't know. A few of us could. There was a few of us that found each other in medical school that that had some of these capabilities and and some of this training. 
But, you know, and they didn't have that as an option, right? That's, I was like, man, like this is stressful and you can't just de-stress. I mean, from a mental health point of view, it's a superpower, right? I mean, one of the reasons, you know, when I, I got to be part of a study that I helped um, uh, uh, incubate and make happen up at Harvard um, through McLean Hospital, and now it's being taken over to MGH. Um, but, you know, McLean Hospital is one of the number one psychiatric research hospitals in the world, and they were interested in studying this ability to go from an ordinary state of mind to a vastly better state of mind and to be able to hold the mind there. And if you have people have, like, anxiety and depression and, you know, whatever other complicated things they have going on, rumination, et cetera, if you have that ability, that's a mental health superpower. And if you don't, like, ow, like, oh my God, it's hard to imagine even living without it now. But for the first, you know, half of my life, except when I was really young, I didn't. Um, and so, you know, and, and this is better, right? So it's a very simple thing. And this is the second training of Buddhism. If we're talking, you know, sort of a classical Buddhism framework. First training is, you know, uh, skillful body, speech, and mind. And then the second training is depths of meditative peace, Come stillness, etc., and then the third training, wisdom, right? And so, even just as a little teaser to the second training, not even getting into the wisdom stuff, like that was just such an advantage. And those of us who could do it um, just had a much easier time getting through what was a very stressful, challenging, um, you know, bit of training and career. And it was just really helped my my ability to just I need a reset here. Good. You know, for example. Well, that's incredible. I think many people would love to have that ability. Yeah. So that's just, that's a simple one as they go. Daniel, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. I deeply admire the work that you and your colleagues are doing. And I can say that we are allies of yours here at New Thinking Aloud. Is there anything else you would like to share today about emergent phenomena? Um, sure. Uh, well, the thing I would put out is a little bit of a, a call if you're interested in helping us with this uh, in any kind of way. If you have time, talent, where your sparks of joy meet our project, if you're interested in reading more, finding out more about how in the world to to help you know the team do this, you could find us at theeprc.org and reach out to us at info at theeprc.org. You can find that on the website, the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium. We'd be delighted to chat with you and figure out how in the world we can ally with your organization if you're already doing something like this, or you know, if, if you want to figure out how to join the team and, and figure out something you can contribute, whatever that might be, uh, we'd be delighted for the help because it's going to take a whole lot of people a whole lot of time. We think this is a many decades long project and, you know, my current estimate for the estimate for the total cost is currently running in the low billions. So, um, you know, if you've got some resources, you can help us out, uh, whatever skill sets and or capacities, that'd be delightful. Thank you. Daniel, this has been a great joy. Thank you so much for being with me today. And I look forward to more conversations with you. All right. It's been really fun. Thank you. Bye. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Mm-hmm.